Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. You could argue at some point, you know, there's been many cases of assets in financial markets recently that are that are, that have a significant amount of government interference. Those assets can be very difficult to trade. Uh, when the government decides to turn off the spigot, you don't know when they're going to do that, and then right. and those can there can be a lot of of things backfire. What I mean by this is, um, you know. These, this is assets that are not trading at artificial levels, I would argue, relative to like cre- uh, credit. So that, that zero to five year credit that, that everyone was trying to front run, you don't have that as much or, or at all in, in a lot of the non-agency space. And so these are really attractive yields. This is one of the only asset classes out there, uh, maybe some of the international markets as well, that, um, that, that, that are still attractive and haven't nearly come close to their pre-March of this year, you know, kind of, uh, you know, plot up. All right. Hello, everybody. We're back for the second, hopefully last COVID corner podcast. I've been down here in the basement quarantined for 11 days now and hoping to be let upstairs tonight. Uh, and so what am I going to get myself for quarantine exit present? I'm going to get to talk real estate, private transactions and real estate debt with uh, these two guys. So welcome. We got Matt Lasky and Darren Cottle. Thanks. How Thanks are you? Um, so I've been a very poor real estate investor over the years. Uh, absent my house, I guess, but that's probably not going to work out either here in debt laid in Chicago. Um so I want to get into you guys convincing me real estate's an okay thing and an okay thing to throw off enough income to pay some uh, debt. Um, but let's start a little with your background. Matt, you want to start? Give us a little background on how you got into uh, real estate and your firm. Sure. So the, the quick story, uh, born and raised in Chicago, my mom held on to her condo that she owned in the Gold Coast uh, before moving out to the suburbs and as a kid. I thought it was cool that a rent check showed up every month and she didn't have to do anything. So uh, very naive view, knowing what I know now on real estate, but I uh, went to school for finance, was always interested in the kind of tangible nature and being able to have an asset that you can touch and feel and see. Um, so fast forward to today, managing partner at Equity Velocity Funds. We have roughly 500 million of assets that you know we control and manage primarily focused on medical office buildings and neighborhood retail in the Midwest, Southeast, and Texas. So primary markets of focus are uh, secondary and tertiary markets east of the Rockies and call it um, off the eastern seaboard and south. And you're in Columbus, Ohio? Correct. Love it. All right, Darren, give us the backstory. Yeah, I am from originally from Louisiana. So my firm Caddo is is uh, Caddo Parish, uh, where I where I grew up. Um, what happened to the accent? I want some like. Uh... You know, Shreveport is a little bit of an interesting town. Um, it's not such a strong Louisiana accent. There are some some pockets, but I would say that that's really more da- uh, uh, South Louisiana. Yeah, I want some I mean, James Carville. The well, except, of course, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You know, I don't know if you've seen that Disney show where uh, he, he the 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 there's the Disney movie where they're where they're down in South Louisiana and the, and and the the um, lightning bug asked them if they're from around here. He said, "No, I'm from somewhere far away." And he said, "You know, he's like, oh, are you from Shreveport?'" <laughs> <laughs> Shreveport That's is, an is, is, is inside really- joke. 
the frog and the prince the frog and the princess what's the name of that one princess and the frog that's right princess and the frog all right um yeah so i went to college for uh math and uh economics and um i got my start at solomon brothers uh right out of college um on on both uh mortgage i spent time on the mortgage desk uh, you know, really the famous Solomon Brothers mortgage desk, uh, as well as the fixed income derivatives desk. Um, and that's where I got started in uh, learning about non trading mortgages, non agency mortgages, hedging, um, both credit risk and interest rate risk. Um, and so my what I uh, uh, do in my, my, my fund is a hedged vehicle for accessing mortgage credit. Um, so we were, and we're doing that through fixed income, investing in mortgages, uh, and we have a tactical future strategy that performs better in, in higher volatility. Um, so that acts as a hedge. Let's go into that a little bit right off the bat here. So mortgage-backed securities, famous or infamous, depending on your view in, you know, 08, 09, right? But they were screaming buy after that, right? That's right. We're backstop. So take us through the whole evolution of the mortgage-backed security and kind of where it exists today. Well, so it was one of the buys of the century uh, post-08, um, you know, really attractive uh, returns. Um, these were beaten down, severely beaten down, uh, because that was the epicenter of the crisis into, in, uh, you know, starting in 07, the, the, the couple of Lehman funds that blew up. Uh, in 09, when there, when the economy rebounded, the stock market rebounded. Uh, these were incredible investments. Uh, you know, at least at a minimum double-digit returns. Um, you know, fast forward today, they're still. Um, uh, uh, we're still not back to the issuance that we saw pre-08. So, where you look at uh, other asset classes that have have really regained their their highs their 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 frothiness and so forth uh the non-agency mortgages uh the private label mortgages commercial mortgages there are still a lot of fines out there that are good attractive returns but wasn't uh, some of that issuance was fraudulent and and right like some of it was so frothy and so there was so much issuance because they were giving it to anyone who would sign their name right this is this is true and we actually swung back in the in, in the opposite direction where it was very difficult to get a loan uh so people that were that were actually worthy credits were being denied um, the loans so in the loan market you're seeing a, a very attractive credit profile uh, and you also have a situation where you've got these legacy Part, some part of our portfolio is legacy mortgages, pre-08 mortgages. And one of the interesting things about these is if they haven't paid off now, by now, um, then- and It doesn't make sense to refinance or anything? It doesn't make sense to refi and they're, you know, so they have neither the convexity risk or much credit risk. So those are very attractive. Um, but in general, um, you know, we're seeing be much better credit worthiness. Uh, specifically right now, what you saw is uh, the Fed decided to back pretty much everything in the market, except non-agency mortgages. So while you've had the stock market rebound strongly, uh, you've had corporate credit become extremely frothy in my mind, mortgages weren't backed. So if you're someone that likes an asset class that's free from government interference, this is one of them. Um, so that's good and bad. The, the well, bad, free from uh, government interference because there's so much government interference. So I'll, I'll put it this way: um, it's uh, I, you could argue at some point, you know, there's been many cases of assets in financial markets recently that are that that have a significant amount of government interference. Those assets can be very difficult to trade uh, when the government decides to turn off the spigot. You don't know when they're going to do that, and then right. and those can there can be a lot of of things backfire. What I mean by this is, um, you know, these this is assets that are not trading at artificial levels. I would argue relative to like cre uh, credit. So that that zero to five year credit that that everyone was trying to front run, you don't have that as much or, or at all in in a lot of the non agency space, and so these are really attractive yields. Is one of the only asset classes out there 
maybe some of the international markets as well that um, that 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 are still attractive and haven't nearly come close to their pre-March of this year, you know, kind of uh, you know plateau. Yeah, and so that makes it really good, uh, attractive profile. So that's mostly on the residential mortgage side. Are you talking commercial mortgages as well? It's across the board okay. in residential and commercial. Uh, that asset class. So just the asset class that 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 is non-agency, not backed by Fannie, Freddie, the, you know, any of the government agencies. Um, that they were willing to. It's, it seems like the Fed, the Treasury. Maybe if we would have seen something more, worse than what we saw, but it, it seemed like they were willing to let the, the let the situation unfold in March. And that's why we saw the price, uh, you know, really escalate and, and, and such volatility in March. Uh, whereas, you know, corporate just, you know, all of a sudden just had a very sharp V-shaped return, recovery. Well, Fed started buying outright. Corporate. Fed buying. But well, there was front running ahead of the Fed um, in, in those asset classes. They knew which ETFs they were going to be buying. So Matt, let's flip it back over to you um, and come at it from the commercial side um, and just what you've seen historically as the opportunity and kind of what it looks like now. Sure. So I think, you know, a lot of going back to March, you know, a lot of the people who were around in 08, 09 thought, you know, they might have another buying opportunity kind of, um, you know, just assets thrown to the wayside without really much thought and for sellers. That definitely wasn't the case. Um, mainly because of some of the stimulus maybe that would uh, have been parallel in the public markets kind of helped its way into the into the private markets. I don't think we're through the woods yet, but if you look at like a lot of the industrial REITs, storage REITs, apartment REITs, uh, basically everything but call it mall REITs and some of the neighborhood like retail REITs, their, their collection took a dip for maybe March and April and a lot are as strong as they've been. So didn't really get hammered. Um, there's still been a wall. And you were seeing those articles like Gap wasn't paying 80% of their rent and like big headline things like that, but you're saying it wasn't that bad? The So I think the re, I, we could probably go for an hour and a half on the nuance of retail. Um, you know, my, my thoughts are in summary, malls are highly nuanced and we're over mauled and that's going to be a mall by mall conversation what shakes out. But there's been a number of examples of Sears goes out, JCPenney goes out, they were paying a handful of dollars of rent because of legacy rent issues. And then, you know, someone in San Francisco redevelops that and they're getting 25, 35 a foot um, and real accretive kind of profit growth through the redevelopment. Um, but, you know, so there was, I think retail's got murkier waters ahead. I also don't think we're through the woods because of the amount of stimulus that was thrown at this. I, I don't know if a lot of the, call it non-public private operators who are tenants have really kind of stabilized and set their, you know, their path forward. Um, you know, you think like restaurants, gyms, things that weren't publicly traded, um, some of the service oriented things, um, they've got stimulus money, but we've got maybe a wavering second lockdown, depending on what state you're in. There are second lockdowns. I just, I don't think it, I, we're still in the early innings of the long-term kind of rent reset and asset price reset. Um, there also haven't been a ton of transactions, but the ones that are a really quality, call it asset trades fueled by cheap debt. So kind of the saving grace here is the spread between, you know, where are you can finance a commercial real estate asset and you're going in cap rate, which is basically, you know, your net operating income divided by purchase price. So you're going in unlevered yield based on where you can you can borrow those spreads are are still huge so people are getting two three four hundred basis point spreads with rated credit um you know people whose credit worthiness in the bond proxy is you know investment grade quality and they're you know financing that at three to three and a half percent debt or you know some of the multi-family guys are borrowing sub free they're probably so these are like the big operators or big real estate developers can borrow for next to nothing and then yep. they're still going to get a cap rate that's above that, above that. So they're still okay. Yep. And there, I mean, there's real positive carry. And then, you know, the, the flip side of that is if you think there's, 
inflation on the horizon. You know, those are all inputs that have to go back into real estate to build them. So, you know, there is a little bit of a peg for inflation, the underlying asset value. And so people like to go in and yield in a relatively low yield world and, and it's got positive carry um, if you can buy right. But to me, that doesn't mesh with like what you see and in, in hear on the news, right? Of like, hey, there's 30 million unemployed. There's um, people aren't going to go back to the office in the same way, right? So you might not be talking about office space, but what, what are your thoughts on the lasting effects of the pandemic? Like, even if we come back, there's not lockdowns. Is there going to be lasting effects on, on what we, where we've come from? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, you know, the Chicago's of the world, the New York's of the world, right? The call it 40 story office towers where people don't want to be in crowded elevators. And now if you're going to socially distance appropriately and try to go into the office, it's a commute once you're already in your building. I mean, there's a big question mark there, but um, we don't do a ton of gen office, but there's a trend over the last 20 or 25 years where the square foot per employee shrunk way down and, you know, is near record lows. So um, that contract, and if that expands back again, there might not be this horrible dearth of, uh, you know, empty office space. Um, It seems like we're having nuanced conversations where, um, Remote works great, except the people in leadership don't always feel that way. And it's tough to build culture. You know, no one has really gone through a recruiting cycle yet in the COVID world. So people have onboarded new employees in this digital world, but we still haven't seen results. You know, it happened in March. And so we're, you know, eight months past, but no one has a full year of fiscal performance to see how their company operates in a kind of remote and distributed world. And, you know, the most famous maybe anti-example to work from home was when Yahoo went fully remote and then called everybody back in, you know, 12 to 18 months. And I think the answer is going to be it in between. I mean, they also had a dying product at the time, right? They did. (laughs) That doesn't help. Um, I think the answer is in between, but where I think we see a lot of this shakeout is in the non, you know, kind of core markets, people are realizing that you can get a really good, you know, cost of living in the Georgia's, Atlanta's, Nashville's, Austin's, Columbus's of the world where there's educated workforce, you know, we can work remote, the internet's everywhere, right? And, and that, that, you know, million to million five starter home in the Bay Area, you can live a really great life most other places. So I think we're going to start to see some acceleration into these migration patterns into warmer and more tax friendly, probably environments from call it some of the major cities. Don't you think that kind of will self-correct, but it might be a 50 year self-correction, right? But if like Nashville traffic gets so bad that it can't support itself anymore, they've got to do something. They've got to raise taxes to build new roads or whatever. So it's it seems yep. to me that long term that self corrects, but yep. who knows? You have you have Rust Belt towns that have never come back, right? So, yep, no, that's true. And I also think that we as Americans aren't really good at looking five to ten years in front of us. So it's like no. Nashville's great today or Austin's great today, not thinking that you know hundreds of thousands of other people think that too, and that the traffic five years from now won't be what it is today. I don't. I don't it's, it's bad. I have friends there. They're like, get these yep. Chicago. And there are a lot of Chicago people. They're like, tell yep. your people to stop moving here. I can't. It takes me 40 minutes to get down the street now. Yeah. Uh, and so, Darren, what? how do you view the mortgage side of it? Like you're making an impl- implicit bet, right? That you think these people are going to be able to continue to pay off their mortgage in mass. Or what does that look like? There has to be at some percentage. Does the whole mortgage back separate into tranches still and all that? That's right. Well, but so I think what the conversation that you and Matt were just having really does, it, it really does show the bifurcated outcomes, if you will. And, and really why I think that you need a prudent approach, because I think that there's the base case here where I think that the real estate is probably one of the best rebound plays we have a vaccine that's widely adopted and accepted by, you know, call it June, July, August, some time frame. It was certainly by fall of next year. The market is not going to, it shouldn't be something that discounts only one, two months in advance. It's going to be looking a year out. In that particular case, you've got 
you know, you, you, you have prognosticators that said, you know, the whole, the whole industry is going to, everybody's going to be working from home. No companies are going to be going back to the office. And so if you have that case, that base case that we're talking about, where, you know, where folks are, are going back into the office, maybe it's still part-time, but there's still a need for physical office, then that means, yes, that means that, 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 that there's some resumption in the economy. And there's probably going to be some built up, uh, a pent up demand, um, which is very good for, the, for this asset class. On the other hand, what you're seeing is you've got a number of different points where you can see some stumble uh, and, and some obstacles. And, and that's where I think either, you know, to, to, to use the, the real estate example of, of, of margin, margin of safety through that cap rate and through the coverage ratios of the properties and so forth, in the fixed income space, you've got to make sure you're in the right, uh, you know, tranche, as you mentioned at first. Uh, and I also see the, the potential for higher volatility uh, because right now you've got stock market at hitting all time highs. Um, and you could argue that's because the, maybe the, maybe you could somehow justify it by saying that the economy's uh, super great. I, I don't necessarily buy that. I think we've had a liquidity-driven um, increase in stock market. Um, but to the extent that the economy is not going off a cliff, that's where you've got the real estate plays, fixed income, non-agency, some of the, the, the lower-tiered credit as very attractive plays because you're not seeing the economy go off a cliff. But that's not to say that there's not going to be some bumps along the road We've got a new administration and so forth. And that non-agency and lower tier, that's you're saying that's going to be the first one that gets hit if the economy well, does massively slow down? It would, but it also offers an incredible risk reward. And so, uh, you know, right now, volatility is is higher than where, say, you know, look at look at the VIX proxy. It's higher than it was, you know, the average over, over the last three, four, five years. Um, but it's still an attractive uh, type of hedge. Um, against, um, you know, a catastrophe again. Um, right. that, that was a hedge we had, and I still think that that's a hedge that's going to put potentially out if we see some stumbling in that particular asset class. And marry, marry you, marry you two together. I don't know what I meant there, but <laughs> like, right. So if you're Matt, you're doing private investment yep. into these properties. You're taking on the debt. Yep. You're receiving the the payments and you're earning that spread simplistically. So yep. how, how do you go from there to a mortgage-backed security that Darren can buy in his mutual fund? So is someone packaging that up? Talk me through Yeah, that. so we, we do a lot with banks who might resell the loans but aren't gonna repackage them. But I'd say probably the, the best connection point is much like Darren was saying on the risk-reward spectrum, you know, three or four years ago, we were taking on less leased property with less lease term and higher leverage and aiming for higher risk adjusted returns. Whereas today we're buying more stable things with higher lease term in place and lower leverage levels to try to, you know, have that margin of safety that Darren talked about. And we're going to have wider cash reserves, wider debt service coverage ratios to hopefully um, not have a situation where Darren is trying to foreclose on us if he owns our loan. Um, and get back the collateral. And and so I think... Um, so I, the in, leverage, sorry, real quick. I think leverage was the piece I'm missing. So you, you yeah. could take your 500 million and go invest it and buy these properties, but then you don't have the leverage. So better to take your capital to the bank, get leverage, then buy the properties. And then that yeah. leverage they're providing you as a loan that it's getting packaged. Uh, yeah. So his, historically, when we were buying assets, um, call it five to 10 years ago, it certainly come out of 08, 09, to the extent we could get it, we we're going 75% leverage. So for every dollar of equity we put to work, we take on $3 of debt. Um, today, that's more like one to two. And so we're, um, you know, we've, we've taken down that leverage based on where we think we may be headed in the economic is, cycle. And is that, that self-imposed or is that bank-imposed or a little bit of both? Mostly self-imposed, a uh, little bit of bank-imposed, but it's it's really that we're trying to lock in that yield for as long as we can. So it's um, 
you know, because of what the 10 year treasury has done and, and LIBOR. And so real estate is this weird industry where we're still pegging things to LIBOR, even though we know it's going away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and because that, you know, is in the tubes, um, we're trying to lock in fixed rate debt for as long as we can. And, and sometimes a trade off there is more conservative leverage levels to the bank, but it also makes us feel good too. And, and we've managed kind of our equity return side with, um, we'd rather tamper back the returns and not try to take that extra, you know, 2% annualized return for debt maturity or debt service coverage risk. So, and, and, and Jeff, I mean, from my perspective, this is, this is in, in music in my ears because, <laughs> you know, it makes, you know, so I, I'm, if you will, I'm not taking specific credit to, to Matt, but. We could know, set that up. We could do a little side pod. Where we're- <laughs> But see, that makes it that that's better for me, and that's better for this industry to hear that people are are approaching it that way. You know, whereas I mean, I would rather bet on Matt than I would the spec investors who are propping up Nasdaq stocks on Robinhood. I mean, and, and that's really the choice that you've got, and why this space looks so attractive. Right. It, but to me, that's an interesting point because it's like you're betting on real economy versus like what we see on CNBC economy, right? Of Tesla and everyone going to the moon. Like this is actual real businesses renting real properties and paying real money, right? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to some extent, it's justified that the that this, this market is still, hasn't reached uh, new highs and it's still below the, the, the February because, you know, I mean, there's no two ways about it. We've seen some some creative, maybe not even creative destruction in this economy, just destruction in this economy because of the, you know, because of the virus and the pandemic and, and, and the steps we needed to take. Um, but to the extent that there is a vaccine and this ripples through the economy, you're going to see an improvement in the real economy. Which is going to, which is going to, which is going to pay dividends to, you know, hopefully my investments and Matt's investments. What, where are you guys both stand on? Are there going to be more um, stimulus? You think we need more stimulus? You think that's coming down the pipe, and does that help you? I'd say we're not necessarily making investment decisions on it, but as you can imagine, we get asked that all the time. And, and we think some is coming, um, especially, you know, we, Chicago, California, you know, locking back down, same with New York, right? So that's that's a lot of the U.S. clout, at least in the financial industry. Um, we, we think there's a good chance. And then, you know, without getting political with, you know, the new president coming in, you know, probably more apt historically to give some sort of stimulus or spend. Um, maybe last four years probably weren't very analogous to typical yeah. Republican, you know, politics, but, you know. When we've had other guests on here saying it doesn't even matter your politics, the the Fed is out of bullets. They're pushing on a string. So even if they want to do something, it needs to be fiscal instead of monetary policy. Yep. That's right. I mean, look, to answer your question, we have to know what's going to go on in Georgia. That's where that's where it all the crux of this. That's the inflection point right there, because the Democrats can pass stimulus in the House, and it can come to a standstill in the Senate. Yeah, and uh, I would say that in a divided government, Senate versus presidency or, or, or versus the executive branch, um, neither side wants to give. So I don't think that that looks very uh, like a situation where we're going to see a ton of fiscal stimulus. Um, I'm just going to get real political now. What do you guys think on like basic income? What does that do for the whole real estate model, right? If there's, if people just get checks and they can spend those checks on their rent or whatever, would everything just reset higher that by that amount? Or you think that would be a good thing? It would take away a lot of risk on your side, right? So we only we only dabble in like multifamily and I have some like personal allocations there to people who do it far better than I do. I think, um, you know, it, it could be good. But if you look at areas where there's like rent control or severe restrictions and so kind of taking the opposite end of a bunch of stimulus, but 
but you know, suppressing demand artificially based on like zoning laws and stuff, prices have gone through the roof. So I'm not, you know, maybe that's great in the short term for investors. I don't know if as a country that'll be great long term because the private side is going to find a way to profit off it and win more. And, you know, enough won't be enough because, you know, if I, if I buy something and for every dollar that flows to the bottom line, I get call it 15 to 20 times that value and balance sheet wealth. When I go to sell it, it's just going to continue to, you know, kind of magnify wealth gaps. Yeah. What interesting to me on it is right. If you just think of like Apple and Amazon, right? Like for their stocks to keep going up at some point, everyone's got to keep buying the stuff. If they don't have enough money to buy the stuff, give them more money to buy the stuff. So your stock can go higher. So like you feel like everyone could get on board with it at some point just to make stocks go higher. I think you're talking about something. So universal basic income. Yeah. In my mind, um, you know, you're talking about jump the shark. We'll pull it back after this. You could, you could, uh, you know, that would, that could potentially be inflationary. Yeah. I mean, there's not much out there that looks inflationary. Um, I mean, even if the fed is going to run hot, uh, which, which they've basically telegraphed that they're going to, and you've got Yellen in the treasury who is also um, very dovish. Um, and, and it looks like Brainerd is going to be the next Fed chairman, you know, but all of those things, none of those things augur for, we haven't had an inflation. Now you introduce what you're talking about. And I think you could start seeing cracks uh, in the edifice that, that, that has protected us against inflation. Now, in our case, I mean, I think that's good for real estate because inflation, you've got the real asset that's going to, that's going to do much better um, in that type of environment. This could be one of the, the, you know, the safer places in an, in a, in an inflationary world. Yeah, right. Which yeah, Matt, you mentioned, you kind of view it as a bit of an inflationary hedge. You didn't say hedge. I can't remember what you said. But. Yeah, I just said, you know, there's there's tailwinds to real estate because you own a real asset when when it's inflationary. And and mainly from the equity side, we like it because it increases our margin of safety because if all the input costs go up, you can't go build down the street for the same basis I own my asset. And that's a good thing. Right, from a com- competition standpoint, you're saying? Correct. Um, so let's talk the flip side of that of yield so low. And if we go in a deflationary environment, what does that do for both the income stream and the investment as a whole? So one of the you know one of the questions we always wrestle is, you know, what what the reversion and sale of your asset looks like. And so if it's deflationary and yields go lower, or you know we pull uh, Germany or Europe and we go negative, type of situation. You know, cap rates are slightly, you know, they're highly correlated to um, the, you know, fixed income proxy and bonds, but they're also reflective of kind of demand and investor sentiment for commercial real estate. Um, It might hurt near term yields, but I think real estate is in our world seemingly getting more and more attention from registered investment advisors, family offices, you know, some foundations and endowments as just a better place to look for fixed income relative to, you know, corporate bonds. Um, And in a lot of cases, you can get the same underlying corporate credit, not in a bond, but through their real estate secured by their lease. So you're just behind the bondholders, but you have, you know, you have an asset if something goes wrong and and similar credit worthiness. So we're- What does that look like? You're like, Right. Aren't those firms big publicly traded that would lease to like Boeing or something in Chicago? Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah. So if you just take like, a, you know, everyone seems to know retail well and, and regardless of the outlook, right, if we own uh, McDonald's on a long term single tenant net lease, now that might be tougher to do something with than like an office building. Let's say it's not, you know, there's times where you can buy that real estate for a substantially higher yield with call it 15 or 20 years of lease term than their corporate bonds trade at. Uh, I'm not right. sure where that's at today, but but yeah. that's the con- those conversations used to not that used to not be a conversation of hey where do we go search for yield but because yields have gone to zero people are starting to get creative probably talking to guys like Darren or looking at things like that of all right this used to just be twenty year treasuries because they were safe and they yield a decent amount now I can't do that where do I go but yeah. that to the point of a lot of those people are you know the danger there is they're stretching for yield. 
and then getting into more riskier stuff. So Darren, talk to me about you're you're not only doing uh, the real estate income stream, you're hedging that with systematic trading models. So talk to us a minute about about that. So I would say if you could see some some pretty decent trends develop on yields are so low that it's really hard to make money, you know, on a trending real estate on a trending fixed income asset right now. There's way more room at this point uh, for to see a trending asset as interest rates go up. So to the extent we can get short on the fixed income side, that's where probably more money can be made going forward. I mean, Germany and, and Japan beg to differ because they, you know, the 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 Bund and the uh, and, and Japanese tenure went negative, further negative, more negative even so. So I mean, there was trends there, but I still think at this point there's a lot of money to be made on the on the short side to, to see rates go up. Um, you know, on our fixed income assets, um, you know, we could get hit. I would say one or two months. I look at it based on the t- uh, in, in 2013 taper tantrum and what happened to, to this space. Yeah, it got hit, um, but it was one or two months. And then the market repriced and, this, and it rebounded and it actually ended up being a very good environment. Um, so I think, I think there is, we're not insulated from a very, very short-term perspective, but I think um, that, that higher inflation could be good for us um, because uh, you know, both on the trend side, making money on the on that side on that way because I think there's going to be more opportunities, um, as well as our fixed income assets are pretty short duration. So it you know it's not as pro- it's not a problem for us that as you know buying a thirty year corporate bond or a thirty year treasury or, you know that you could be underwater for a long time. But the whole concept of your model is not to just own the income, right? Is also to be uh, uh, that's right. So, so just talk to us for a second what the other sides of the old model are. Well, so, you know, we've done a lot of research in terms of, of trend models that work on interest rates on the upside. And so we've really pinpointed different models to make sure they could capture moves that we saw in, for example, 1994, you know, big upward moving rates, um, the 2006, uh, 2005, 2006 area, uh, um, environment. Um, and then also looking at, you know, more recently 2013 paper. So we want to back test our models and make sure that they're robust to be able to make money in higher rates. So we can get, sh- we sit quite simply, we can just get short, um, you know, five-year, 10-year uh, treasuries on a systematic basis. And that's how we make money in that, on, the, on that. Trend. And we're talking uh, some sort of trend following model. Yeah, we have, I'd say about 25% of those models are trend following. Um, when I first started in 2011 um, and launched my firm, we were we had a much more significant um, uh, comp- composite uh, exposure to trend following itself. You know, a lot of our trend models are actually more uh, early. We're, we're trying to capture early stage kind of momentum moves. Um, trend, trends tend to capture the later stage moves. If they happen, they haven't really, there haven't been any later stages. Well, there have, but then they've reversed before, you know, trend following could lock in those, lock in those gains. So, um, you know, we do, we've got a a number of different models that try to look at, um, try to, are are shorter term than, uh, than the longer term trend models of the seventies and eighties, put it that way. Got it. Um, and I was just thinking when we were talking negative rates, like Germany or no one, no one's had negative mortgages, have they? It's not a thing. They don't pay you to buy a house. I think there might have been some shenanigans in like um, the Netherlands yeah. where they, I, it, but they didn't technically pay you, but they like abated you. Um, not an expert, but somewhere in my knowledge bank, I think they, they were getting credited to buy things uh, yeah, roughly. There were some interesting things going on in the Nordic countries, uh, and and have seen some 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 kind of weird. Right. So did that blows up the whole model, right? Like if if you have to pay people instead of them paying you the income stream, how does that work? You know, I don't think we 
just given the the where we are, so we're not in the, so where it's gone negative has been in that that would be the equivalent to our U.S. agency space. Um, so you know that would be government. You know, so situations where there was very little credit risk, our 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 sectors have enough credit risk where rates would have to go severely negative for our rates to see. For, for the, the um, assets that we're investing to see negative. I, 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 wanna, I don't ever wanna say never, never, but I don't see it at all feasible. And, and it's not something I think about because I just don't, I don't, I don't see it in the cards. Matt, how about you? Any pretzel brain there? You can unwrap that? No, I don't, I don't like, I don't have a strong opinion. I don't think that'll change kind of our our normal course of business i mean you know if we're getting paid to borrow i think we try to borrow more um i don't i don't foresee that being the case um but but that's usually tied to residential housing um and and as darren said the agency side so with us being primarily commercially focused um yeah i don't i don't that would be even more mind-blowing if that pops up than call it a german boon going negative to me right You mentioned before the malls. I just want to touch on that a little bit and retail. Like it seems nobody wants to touch that with a 10 foot pole. I haven't seen what those REITs are trading at, but are they at 10 year lows, five year lows? What, what does that look like? Uh, not, not exactly sure where they are relative to, to history. Um, you know, a couple of the mall guys have to restructure a couple, you know, are getting bought out. A lot of the, the mall pure play mall operators, their stocks have been, in a precipitous decline and that but that started you know a handful of years ago kind of as yeah. you had your sears and jc start to and macy's um you know we're struggling type of thing and so that's you know i think in the real estate space covid has really been an accelerant i don't know how much you know other than the work from home abilities and kind of distributed workforce and i think you know we'll forever change the way we work. I still think it's going to be a blend of in-office and, and teleconferencing. But instead of like being on the plane all the time, I think you know Zoom calls will be more uh, more appropriate. Yeah. But and I, and know, I've, I was short Macy's four years ago. I didn't have enough uh, staying power in the trade. But I was looking at it. I'm like, this is the same thing as Blockbuster, right? They spend yeah. all this money on expensive real estate. They pay someone to pick out things they think you'll like. Yep. And and I think the the, the real estate space in retail is extremely nuanced. So there's a bunch of data that shows um, omni-channel retail does better, meaning both online and store. And and there's been a number of online brands that launch. You like look at a Warby Parker who launched online, went gangbusters, yeah. and now is building out their physical store footprint. And the data supports that being more profitable from call it a net margin standpoint. Um, whether it's brand awareness or, you know, easier returns where people feel more comfortable buying something online because then they can go return it in the store or swap it in the store. Uh, the data seems to support that. But if you look at a macro level, you know, all the, all the big, smart Wall Street money always compares, call it U.S. retail per square foot to the global set. And we're just, we're infinitely over-retailed. Um, even if you factor in the, you know, the, the fact that we like to spend up to our gills and America yeah. has typically had more of a consumption problem than the rest of the world. What uh, do you have those numbers top of mind? What do they look like? Like I don't. 2X, they're, 3X? Yeah, their magnitude's different. It's not like we have 10% more retail. We have more like multiples, more retail per square foot. And, and so I think, you know, that's where e-commerce and Amazon being able to deliver to rural towns within a day or two, you know, that's, that's a risk. Whereas that mall used to be the center of a county and draw from an hour in each direction. E-commerce is really um, is really putting a dent in that type of stuff. But some of the mall operators are, you know, pivoting well and building. You know, the buzzword is experiential um, real estate or experiential retail, where they're converting uh, part of their old dead big boxes to like live workplace stuff, where they're integrating you know, residential component and an office component. So you really don't have to 
it doesn't feel as much like a mall, but leave kind of your area. And yeah. you know, yeah. we're seeing creative things like field houses being brought in. If you think about, you know, taking your kids to, uh, you know, like a sporting event, you know, if you can have the, all the amenities of a mall or go do something else rather than being a, you know, a field in the middle of nowhere and stuck with like concession stand food, um, yeah, you're be- seeing creative things like that. In Vero Beach, where I'm from, I was down visiting my mom before COVID hit and she walks in the mall in the morning. So we're doing the walk. It's like a church. Like yeah. the Sears is now a church, the uh, a Kung Fu studio, the sheriff, like a satellite sheriff's office. And I was I was telling uh, her husband, I'm like, this is smart. They're like pivoting. They're doing stuff. And he's like, nobody ever made a career selling to a church. No. He's like, they're not known for paying high real estate costs. No, that's uh, that we we call that. That's kind of like the death now. Once there's a church in the retail, there, you know, that that's a bad sign. <laughs> they don't pay a lot. Um, yeah, but that's got to be. There's got to be specialists. Are there specialists who come in and like, hey, we'll 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 try and turn this thing around? Yeah, there are. Um, a lot of it really gets back to kind of blocking and tackling of the quality of the dirt. If it's in a really good location with great surrounding call it real estate demographic trends if you can buy it at the right basis then you'll be okay i mean we we kind of flippantly say it but we we frequently will say there's no bad assets only bad prices and if you give me a well-located mall for free we'll figure out what to do with it yeah i might not pay a bunch (laughs) but it's like it's the margin of safety concept and now now i see these malls it's just the like carabas and like the restaurants on the in the parking lot on the outside Mm-hmm. Like they're busy and there's nothing going on at the center of the mall. People are just coming to go to the things in the parking lot. Yep. Uh, and then, so malls dead. I don't want to invest them. Um, but how about more like strip molly type retail stuff? Or is that one and the same? No. So that, I mean, we own a lot of that. I would say, um, you know, probably call it, 100 to 150 million dollars of kind of gross asset value there um and you know for for 10 years we've had this term called the amazon test which was our way of saying you know if you could do it online or it had big e-commerce exposure we weren't as interested looked like geniuses up until march and then (laughs) you know when you have a heavy exposure to restaurants and fitness um you know we're, we're working through some things but our our collections in that in April, dropped to 70%. We're back in the 80s in May, and now they're back in the 90s. So I still think we're in the early innings and you know, worried about restaurants. But what's the, what's normal? You're never at 100%? You're at- yeah, we're usually in the mid-90s um, in collection. And, and a lot of that is just you know, there's, there's things you're not going to be able to do online and we're trying to buy where rents are replaceable and getting in and building a new building at the same cost for relatively similar rents is mathematically impossible. And so that gives us a, you know, a decent stay in power. We might not be rapidly increasing rents, like kind of call it like Bay area, multifamily guys or office guys were able to do over the last 10 years, but it, it hasn't been super painful. But a lot of it comes down to supply and demand. If you're in a strong suburb in most parts of the country at a reasonable basis without too much leverage, you'll have staying power and probably get through it. But if you're over levered and there's cornfields next to you and, you know, prices drop, then, you know, someone might build next door and take your tenants. That's my brother's a realtor in uh, Boulder, Denver area. And he said they just keep building east. They just keep going further and further all are almost out to the airport. He's like, no one wants to buy a used house when they can go three more minutes down the road and get a brand new. Um, so similar thing. If there's, I like that. If there's a cornfield next to you, be weary. Darren, you got any other words of wisdom? Tell, tell us quickly about your... Um, so there's the model to protect on the rates going up, but you also have a volatility piece, right? Right, right. Tell us so quickly that, about that. that. And then, that, Matt, I want to ask you on your, you do some investment stuff on the side. Sure. Well, that was really our saving grace in, in March. Is, is So we have a, so part of my background is I was a volatility trader. Um, started off in fixed income and then, and then led to equity volatility trading. 
Um, so we have a model that is dictating our positioning in, in VIX futures. Um, and that's been a painful long, uh, even, even tactically a painful long. We've lost money um, in and out of that. It's cost, we expect a, it costs us about 85 bips a year. Um, this year, it made us 17%. Um, and, and so really saved us. Uh, that's a lot of 85 bips a year you can uh, make up for with that. Well, yeah, I mean that, and, and we wouldn't do it if we didn't, if we didn't expect or hope for that kind of return um, on these particular occasions. But you know, keep in mind, it's been since really 2011, I would say, um, since there was a, a really large, significant wall blow up. Um, but we expect that to be a hedge to us um, because we think that if, well, for the longest time, vol was so attractively priced. And if we could tactically get in there, which our model was dictating, um, then, you know, we'd be able to make money. And then we actually were, we, we, we had gone flat in our fixed income portfolio um, toward the end of March, um, stepped back in in April. But in the meantime, what we had, what we had done was gone to uh, just uh, agency mortgage credit. Um, agency mortgages, and we started uh, to, you know, this was really in the, in, the, in the beginning stages of where we saw some sort of rebound. We had put a spread on in, in VIX. So we were short the front and long the uh, second and third uh, VIX contracts. And that gave us a bit of a roll down uh, return. So if, if vol stabilized, if vol were, so what, what was going on is the vol curve, the front end was way higher than the the, the, the back end. And so we were playing that. That was the first thing that was going to stabilize before assets started to really rock it up. And so, you know, at the end of the day, that was the play we made from uh, at that point, because we felt that was the most conservative. It was also, you know, dictated by our systematic model. Right. So it we, seems like most retail or most normal investors don't consider that they need to hedge their fixed income component, right? Well, like, you get yeah. institutional investors are buying credit default swaps and doing all sorts of fancy stuff, but a normal investor doesn't really think of that. I guess you you know what I would think of what I would say is in this world you could either just go buy something to yield. I would rather buy something that's yielding 15, 16, 17 percent and hedge it than to buy something in the fixed income space that's yielding three, four, five percent. Which seems like it's even hard to get three, four, five percent these days, right? Or sometimes two, and so, so, yeah. so we do, we do want to go down and spec in the down the credit spectrum and hedge. That's where I believe the risk reward is, but it's necessary to put those those hedges on. Now, we at part of our model, what our model is saying is vol got so high uh, in March that vol no longer was a hedge. Yeah. It, was, it was approaching 70, which was, you know, which was where it was in 2008. And so what our model tells us to do is to flatten both because we need to feel comfortable that we can go buy an asset and hedge an asset. And with vol at 70, we, we, there's no hedge. Right. It could go to 120, but how, how much lower the bond's going to go. Yeah. And so, so it actually, I mean, we felt really good about that tactical move dictated by our model again. Um, because what happened was at, for, a, for a bit, vol was coming down and asset prices were declining. And, that, and that's really what we, I mean, that's kind of what we expect, what, what, we, what we had built into our model to do that. But back right now, again, I think, you know, we're starting to see assets that are, look good and vol is attractively priced. And so, you know, we would go back, we, right now we're flat hedges in vol, um, but you know, I, I would, we're very close to going back into our ball hedges. And Matt, how do you guys view that from a, a corporate standpoint of hedging the risk or it's just lowering the risk going in is how you hedge? Yeah, we're, you know, a different on the personal level, but on the professional level, it's, you know, we, we play the role of commercial real estate. And, you know, a lot of our clients who are family offices or RIAs, it's up to them to you know, have a global view of the portfolio and hedge accordingly, or, you know, construct the portfolio in a way that we're delivering what we said, which is kind of, a, you know, pure play 
uh, private equity, commercial real estate. And then that's the bucket that's in and any hedges, you know, part of their tactical asset allocation. Do you feel they make the mistake sometimes you don't have to name names of like thinking that this is a diversifier? The real estate? I people? think, uh, yeah, a lot of times correlations go to one and people tend to forget that very quickly. Um, and, you know, I we benefit from it, but it, it's nice not, you know, in March, it was great not looking at a personal PL and seeing assets mark to market daily, but that doesn't mean there's not volatility. And I would say that's the, the more common mistake in either, you know, what call it middle market company, private equity or commercial real estate, private equity is that we're updating assets you know, valuations annually. That doesn't mean they don't change every day. It just means you don't yeah. have to look at them every day. So what you're saying that benefits you, just the fact that you don't have to update it every day? Yeah, and I think behaviorally it's nice, right? It's oh, like yeah. intuitively you know that they're changing, but yeah, I, I don't get to refresh my trading screen and see a live look at my PL. Yeah, I've joked around on Twitter. I should have gone into private equity. You get to market, market to what you want. Um, manage futures world where we're marking the market every day. Yep. getting calls. Um, right. So then on a personal level, how do you view that? So I, you know, I built and I, it sounds similar to Darren. I wouldn't quite call it trend following because it's a little quicker, uh, you know, and, and I'd rather get chopped out for a small loss than give back, you know, huge gains or miss the first call it 12 or 15% of a move. Um, you know, so I was, you know, this year traded everything from, long and short VIX futures to, you know, gold futures, treasury futures, and, you know, more, more recently Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't want to sound the internet alarm on it, but I like assets with volatility because my whole, you know, I'm trying to quantify human emotion and trade it systematically. And so I think, you know, Bitcoin, no matter what side you're on, there's a lot of emotion there. And I feel like you can see it in a trading model. And so I'm interested in that. Um, but, it's but funny, like the Chicago prop firms, right, that trade their own money. I feel like oh, they yeah. just created Bitcoin in a lab, right? They're like, yeah. what can we do? We need something that's digital that we can trade back and forth with one another and basically have a contest of who's smarter, who can make more money. All right, it, Bitcoin, done. It's a trader's dream. And right now you got, right, the one institutional custodian really and GBTC trading at like a 25% premium to net asset value. And you're able to like buy in a pipe and have your money locked up at net asset value. I mean, it's a it's an arb trader's dream. It's kind of like, yeah, you know, I wasn't around then, but it feels like the wild, wild west of like futures trading, you know, 30 years ago. Oh, it's crazy. We're in, get into some of those conversations here in Chicago. And then a lot of them are mining it also. So that kind of like they're on all sides of it. Um, and so you're you're saying personally, I realize I'm kind of short volatility in this yep. career wise. And so I want to hedge it with some access to volatile moves on the personal account side. Yeah, basically build a way to have something with a convex payoff that, you know, doesn't just, you don't just watch tail risk, whether you're seeing it mark to market or not, but watch it implode, right? It's kind of like you, uh, you look at some of these strategies, then you see what happened in 08. Um, you know, I real estate, you didn't know what the daily value was, but you know, it was plummeting. And so to tr try to hedge that out and, and really it was to have, if I can allot and keep liquidity with a relatively positive carry, it's kind of like the Dawa Capital, Mart Spitznagel thing of, I want to have a lot of liquidity in an 08 or an 09. So building something that's liquid and inversely correlated kind of suited my worldview for, um, you know, cheap assets. Now, I also thought real estate was going to correct for the last two or three years and have been woefully wrong. So <laughs> you know, that's why it's systematic and not what Matt thinks is going to happen. Um, right. But but that's the theory behind it. Uh, and why not just like buy puts on REITs or something? Could that, I mean, that's one way to do it. Um, you know, I do a little bit of option work, but I don't want to, you know, in a high volatility environments where I have to be worried about my balls and my overpaying for volatility. Uh, I just think there's more efficient ways to do it. And, you know, with a futures product, well, I guess recently everyone's up in their margin on VIX futures, but, you know, there's other ways through futures to have more efficient uses of capital than options in higher ball regimes. All right. I'm going to write a paper on how, even when the futures are more volatile, that's an implied price. That's the same as the higher option price, but that's a topic for another day. Yeah, uh, I'll read it. Then we can talk yeah. about it. 
And when I say I'm going to write that paper, it's never going to happen. But it's in my <laughs> it's in the back of my brain somewhere. I'll just add the thing about hedges is you want to have a diversity of hedges. You know, like for example, what what was going on in March is gold was plummeting. Yeah. So you know that that's one of the when you look at traditional hedges, um, they don't always work. And so I think the the key is to have you know these different hedges. I mean, to give you know to just to answer that that question you posed about the puts on the on the REITs, for example. In this particular case, it would have been really good because REITs was an epicenter of that of the demo, of the destruction in March. But what you know, what if REITs was a relatively unscathed asset class in that in, in that period? Then you would have bought puts at a relatively high implied vol, and it wasn't it didn't pay off. So right, what if it was like there was something with the sun rays, and you could only shop inside malls? They, I mean, they broke the internet. You had to go into the malls to shop. The mall rates It's exactly. I mean, like trend following should be the uh, the strategy that 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 is so complementary, right? The problem is is that it's what what's your time frame? Because right, especially if it's an extended big blowout move that's going to be like bankrupt you as a real estate investor, right? Like if it's a month of pain or even three, six months, so be it. But if it's a, that's why you want to have the VIX two, three the VIX year can, blowout the VIX can, can, can really pop a lot quicker. That's why we do the VIX plus trend following to because, you know, each has its own, you know, purpose. But in this particular case, the trend following it made, a, it made some money, but not that much. Certainly not enough to, to compensate. That's why the VIX was there. Yeah, I would, you know, doing and echoing on that, uh, like looking throughout long-term history, right? If you look at like gold or 20-year treasuries as a hedge or diversifier, those correlations have changed dramatically over the last hundred years and don't always hold up to Darren's point as a hedge, depending on the environment. So, you know, I think the only way to not get your face ripped off is some sort of, you know, trend following type mentality on maybe multiple diversified and uncorrelated asset classes. Right. A systematic approach to be sure. Yep. Um, so if you're just throwing dice out there right off like, Oh my God, March, I'm going to, I'm going to hedge now. It's you're going to be too late. Well, this has been fun. I'm going to move on to uh, some of your favorites. We'll do quick fire here. So Matt, you used to live in Chicago. You have a favorite uh, Chicago restaurant? So probably current favorite restaurant there, Maple Nash. Pretty nice. cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. The uh, candelabras and all the, uh, except we took some uh, business people from Spain there and it was a bad move because the it was so loud and they was having trouble translating. Um, Darren, how about you? Any San Fran spots we need to check out next time? Hmm. You know, I gotta. I have to give a nod to the East Bay, and I'd say Comis. I mean, if you're if you're a, a real foodie, it, it, this guy uh, is Comis. Comis. It's uh, it's worth a trek out to the East Bay if you're staying in San Fran. All right, I'll do it. Um, I don't think I've ever been to the East Bay, so I have to fix that up. The um, uh and matt you're a bit of a golfer aspiring uh aspiring. favorite COVID, favorite golf but, course oh um i got i mean haven't played there but just watching on tv nothing gets me excited like the masters i mean i just that the atmosphere there is phenomenal that was darren uh what's his name dustin johnson just kind of cruised through that though i was hoping it would be a little more excited i was had covid i'm locked in my basement i'm like all right yeah. here we go uh, Darren, how about you, a golfer? I don't have the patience. <laughs> I've tried. I, I, I'm a member of a golf club, but I, I don't. And I, and I actually would have played if my younger daughter would have kind of continued. Um, you know, just my kids were young and I just didn't have time to play. And, you know, and, and also, you know, I used the weekends to, to hang out with them, but you know, now that they're older, I'm, I am actually starting to think about getting, getting back and giving it another fair shake. Make some friends, get out to Pebble Beach and you'll be all good. <laughs> um, 
the uh, any favorite books on real estate investing? Not really. It's um, or I'll take favorite famous real estate investor. Sam Zell, I think, would be my go-to. Not just being from Chicago, but you know, has done a great job of you know earn the title the great dancer um and and has done well i don't know that title what what was he grave dancing uh you know buying distressed stuff yeah but buying distressed assets or distressed debt you know when everybody else thinks he's nuts and uh and riding the reversion was that his monster truck i don't know wasn't that a monster truck grave dancer grave digger i think it was grave digger but affiliated uh, Darren, how about you? Favorite uh, investing book, real estate or otherwise? Yeah, I'm going to throw out one. You know, he actually deserves to be read. Um, uh, uh, Vic Niederhofer, Education of a Speculator. It's a dense book, but I love that was the book that really turned me on to investing because he was so smart and he talked about history and politics and philosophy and and how it all worked into his own trading scheme. Now, even though he was, you know, spectacularly blew up, the guy was so, or he is still, he is so smart. And um, I think it's a worthwhile book to read just from a understanding someone's philosophy. And then you can actually take some lessons from his, you know, his mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so I think about him all the time in terms of of, of being able to build in that margin of safety, build in that risk reward and so forth, because he didn't, that one instance he didn't, um, and it really cost him. I know his brother is also a, uh, yeah. a fairly famous CTA. Uh, all right, guys, how, last one, favorite Star Wars character. Ooh, can I can I say Baby Yoda or do I have to pick a current? No, uh, you can go Baby Yoda. We've had a couple of those. I had right. a... Uh, I've got somewhere over here a, a little baby Yoda thing, but I can't find it. Darren, got one? Yoda. Yoda, or senior Yoda, baby versus senior. I love it. We'll see next Friday. There might be some uh, reveals when they, they take baby Yoda to see uh, Ashana Toka. But we'll leave the nerds some, the nerddom there. All right, guys, it's been fun. Uh, thank you. We'll put some uh, links to all your different stuff in the show notes, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jeff. Great. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.